Well, good morning. Welcome again to PBC. I want to add my welcome to those that have come before and also let you know that uh, my wife Lindsay and I are hosting a welcome dinner at our home tonight for anyone who might be new to PBC. So if you're looking for a smaller place to come and meet a few people who are new, uh, we would love to have you to our home this evening. You can just come up and find me after the service and I can give you the details on that. Well, I I'm guessing that not too many of us have had the experience of Bruce Nolan. Bruce Nolan uh, first became a public figure back in 2003. He was actually at the center of a blockbuster movie called Bruce Almighty. And uh, Bruce was a newscaster who had the unfortunate experience of losing his job, followed by just a number of other kind of snowballing, difficult things in his life that led him to a place of crying out to God in anger and accusing God of doing a bad job of running the universe. After Bruce does this, uh, very shortly after, he receives an anonymous note. And this note has instructions that take him to an abandoned warehouse. He gets into this empty warehouse, and in this warehouse, he meets a man who claims to be God. And this man tells him that he's going to give him the opportunity to try his hand for one week at being God to see how it goes. Now, uh, this should go without saying, but if you ever receive an anonymous note with instructions to, that take you to an empty warehouse where you meet somebody who claims to be God, you should run the other way. <laughs> there are people in our world who claim to be God, right? who think themselves to be God. And most of the time for these people, we're pretty quick to write them off as mentally unstable. There, there are other people who, they don't claim to be God, but they, they think of themselves as God or they act as if they are God, right? Like they're more important than everybody else, like they're always right. We say they have a God complex and we call them narcissists. And, and you know these people, right? No, don't look, don't look at the person next to you. I saw a few sideways glances. I'm not trying to start anything here, okay? But, but you, there's probably somebody that came to mind, right? Maybe somebody that you know personally, uh, maybe it was a, a public figure, a, a celebrity or a politician or a business leader or, or, or somebody who, who acts as if they're just better than everybody else, acts as if they're God. And most of, these, most of the time, these people tend to rub us the wrong way, right? We have a negative reaction to, to people who, who might either actually think themselves to be God or just act as if they are. And yet there's one person, one person who claimed to be God, whose claims I think we need to take very seriously. And, and I'm not talking about Elon Musk. <laughs> I'm talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus, who, who was known in his day as Jesus of Nazareth, right? born 2,000 years ago to parents, Mary and Joseph. He, he, he lived a life that was attractive to the people around him, and yet eventually he was killed. And yet despite that, he's known, widely recognized, as one of the most influential people to ever have walked the face of this earth. And he was somebody who claimed to be God. And today, there are about 2.4 billion people around the world who call themselves Christians and who look to this man, Jesus, and the claims that he made to be God, and they say, I think he was right. That's pretty staggering. 2.4 billion people, that's like a third of the world's population. Well, what do we do with that? 
What do we do with, with the claims of this one man who was so audacious as to say that he was actually God? How do we make sense of all of the people around the world today who believe that he was right? And, and what difference does it really make if he was right or if he was wrong? What are the implications of that? We're continuing our Explore God series. We're actually nearing the end of it. And if you've been here with us for the series, welcome back. We're glad that you're here. If you're just joining us for the first time today, we're glad that you're here as well. Uh, and in, in this series on Explore God, we're asking some of these big questions of life and faith. And the question that we're going to look at today is, is Jesus really God? All right, what do we do with the claims of this man who lived 2,000 years ago? And I recognize that there's probably some of us here who aren't even quite sure if we believe in God, right? Maybe we're not really sure if he is real or if he exists. And there might be other people who we, we've walked with Jesus for some time, but, but you've got some questions or you're not really sure why you believe what you believe. And I think that for, for any of us that fall in those categories, this is a good morning for us to be here. And this is a good question for us to wrestle with. Because uh, what we're going to see this morning is that the, the claims that Jesus makes to be God and the way that he backs up those claims actually serve as some of the best evidence that we have for actually believing that God exists. So we're going to unpack that together this morning. What's up with this person, Jesus, and these claims that he made? And I hope that no matter where you are on your journey of faith, whether you're just checking out faith for the first time or have been walking with Jesus for many years, that this morning might be an encouragement to you and that there might be something that would help you take one step forward in that journey of faith. Well, I want to begin by asking the question, you know, did Jesus actually claim to be God? We know that the church thinks of Jesus as God, but there are people who will, will look at the life of Jesus and look at the words of Jesus and say, well, Jesus himself never actually claimed to be God. Jesus didn't think of himself as God. Jesus thought of himself as something else and the early church just ascribed to him this claim to be God. But what we see as we look at the words of the New Testament and specifically these biographies of Jesus that we call the gospels, as we look at the words that Jesus said, it's very, very difficult to deny the fact that Jesus thought of himself as God and that people around him understood that that's how he thought of himself. Uh, the Gospel of John is one place where we find Jesus saying a number of things that make us believe that he thought of himself as God. Uh, one of those comes in John chapter 10, uh, where in verse 24, he's talking with some Jews and, and this is what we find. It says, so the Jews gathered round him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, what the Jews were getting at, that they want to know if Jesus is the Christ, they're not actually asking him if he's God or if he thinks of himself as God. They're asking if he's the Christ, which is the Jewish word for the Hebrew Messiah. And in the Hebrew mindset, in the Hebrew worldview, coming from the Hebrew scriptures, they had this hope of one who would come who is called the Messiah, one sent from God, but not one that they thought of as God. And this one who was to come was going to, to come to deliver the people of God. 
and, and to bring in an unprecedented era of, of freedom, of grace, of peace, of liberation, of justice. And, and the Hebrew world was really built around this expectation that God was going to send someone this Messiah. And, and you know, we, we may have some concept of an American dream, right? Something that, that Americans kind of structure their lives around. You know, maybe it's the, the white picket fence or the job that pays more money than you know what to do with or, or whatever it might be that we associate with that. There's kind of a cultural sense of like, this is what people value. This is where people place their hope. For, for the Hebrew people, this was the Messiah. Like th this is what they longed for. This is what they hoped for. This is what they built their lives around. And Jesus comes and he starts to, to show some hints that maybe he is this one. Maybe he's the, the Messiah come from God to usher in this area of peace and prosperity for the people of God. And so the Jews, they come to him and they say, just tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? And this is how Jesus responds in verse 25. He says, I told you, and you do not believe. A few verses later, he says, I and the Father are one. Jesus is saying, I, I am the Messiah. I, I am that one that you've been longing for, hoping for, that you've built your lives around, waiting for. That's who I am, but I'm, I'm more than that. He says, I and the Father are one. I, I am God. I am God incarnate, God in human form. Very clearly, Jesus thought of himself as God. And it's also very clear that the people that heard him say that understood exactly what Jesus meant by those words. Look at the way that they respond, starting in verse 31. It says, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Right? They understood with crystal clear clarity that Jesus was claiming to be God. He was making a claim of divinity. I and the father are one, I am God. And that claim, drew up such a response from the Jewish people that they pick up stones to kill him. And they don't do it right here, right? They don't actually kill, end up killing him here, but they are going to end up killing him for that exact claim, to be God. They think of him as having committed blasphemy. So if we, if we look at the words of Jesus and if we look at the way that the people respond to Jesus, it becomes very clear that, that Jesus did actually think of himself as God. He did actually claim to be God. But he didn't stop there. He, he didn't just say words. He actually demonstrated that he was God. And so we, can, we don't have to just look at the words of Jesus. We can also look at the life and the actions of Jesus as we're looking for evidence about Jesus being God. Jesus uh, does a, a number of things in his life that are quite unusual. Uh, we call them miracles. The, these things that don't have a natural explanation. But people have tried to, to kind of approach these different ways. In 1820, Thomas Jefferson took a, a copy of the New Testament and with a, a razor blade and tape, he, he actually cut out all references to the supernatural, 
any, any miracle that took place in the life of Jesus, uh, he cuts those out, he sets them aside, he takes what, what few pages are remaining and compiles them together into a book called The Life and Philosophy of Jesus of Nazareth. And the approach, Thomas Jefferson, he, he never called it a Bible, but this is commonly known as the Jefferson Bible. And what Thomas Jefferson is doing is he's saying, well, we know that there is no such thing as the supernatural, right? We know that God doesn't exist. And so we know that Jesus couldn't be God. And so anything in these pages that hints that he is or he might be, let's just take that out because we know it's not true. And then we'll be left with what's actually true. And the picture of Jesus that's left is one of a, a very wise man, of a, a person who, who gave the, these ethical instructions and built this system that people said, this is deeply good. This is deeply true. And they look at the sacrificial actions that Jesus took in his life and say, this, this man embodied goodness, but he's not God. And that's the way that a lot of people in our culture would think about Jesus. Right? He, he's got a lot of good things to say that if we could actually follow the things that he would have us do, that, that life would work better, right? That the world would be a better place. There's a lot to this Jesus guy, but we know he's not God, right? And we don't get there by looking here. We, we get there by just our assumption that there is no such thing as God. There is no such thing as the supernatural, but I would suggest that, that that's not a great way to try to discover truth. That it's better that we come to this book with an open mind and say, well, well, maybe God does exist. And maybe there is such a thing as the supernatural. And if we allow for that, what do we find in the pages of this book that would either confirm or deny that possibility? And when we look at the life of Jesus, we see that he did a bunch of things that just don't make any sense if there is no God. That, that Jesus did things that, that only God could do, that, that no mere man could do. Again, we call these the miracles, right? And most of the miracles that Jesus does are healing miracles, right? He, he, he heals people that have leprosy. There's people who, who've been lame, who, who can't walk, and Jesus comes and he speaks to them and touches them and they get up and they start dancing. A man who's been blind from birth and Jesus gives him sight for the first time. And then if you read your way through the gospels, there's some paragraphs where it's just like, and then Jesus healed many more people, right? As if this just like is always happening wherever he goes. Something that, that only God could do. Jesus also casts out many demons from many different people in different places and he brings freedom from the bondage of the demonic. And then there, there's other times where, where Jesus actually like manipulates nature. He actually controls the, the physical world in some, of, in some ways. One of the places that we see this is in the gospel of Matthew, one of these biographies of Jesus that we have in the New Testament. And if we look in chapter eight of Matthew, starting in verse 23, here's the story that we read. And when he, that is Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. They went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the wind and the sea, 
and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? I'm not sure if you've ever been out at sea when a storm has struck. I've never been in that exact situation. The closest that I've gotten was on a lake in Minnesota on a pontoon boat. And uh, it was a relatively small lake, but I was out there with my family. Uh, and it had been a nice enough day, but the storm, we can see it starts blowing in. And we're looking at that like, I think we need to start heading back to shore. So we start to make our way back to shore. Uh, but as we go, the wind picks up, the waves start getting rough, and pretty soon the skies just open and it is pouring on us. Now, it, it wasn't like really scary. I mean, something to lightning a little bit, but like uh, we, we weren't like afraid that the boat was gonna tip over or that we were gonna sink and drown or something like that. But, but it was a little bit scary. Do you know what I did not do in that moment? I did not stand up and say, wind, be still, right? Waves, be still. It, it never even crossed my mind because I'm not God and it would do nothing, right? I actually had somebody after the first service told me, I've actually tried speaking to the wind before to get it to calm down and it didn't work. Yeah, that, that's what we would expect to happen if somebody does this. And yet Jesus stands out, he, he's sleeping when the storm starts. And his disciples come to him and they say, Lord, Lord, save us for we are, we're perishing. And I'm not sure exactly what they were hoping that Jesus would do, but I know that they weren't expecting him to do what he actually did, which is to get up, to speak to the wind, to speak to the waves, and to have the water go flat and the sail droop still. And we know that they weren't expecting this because when Jesus does this, they're left looking at him and they, they're still trying to figure out who this guy is. They probably understand him as the Messiah, but, but they don't understand him to be God yet. And they look at him and they're like, who is this man? Like what just happened? That there's more to this man than we thought because clearly he's doing things that only God could do. And they're starting to get it. He claims to be God and he's demonstrating by his power that he must actually be God. But of all of the miracles in the gospel stories, and there are many of them, of all of the miracles, there, there is one miracle that stands above the rest. And that is the resurrection of Jesus himself. And, and you know, sometimes we, especially if you've been around church for a while, we kind of forget how ridiculous of a notion it is that somebody would rise from the dead, right? People don't rise from the dead, okay? We know that. Ancient people know that. They weren't stupid. They know people don't come back from the dead. And Jesus actually told people, his disciples in particular, on three separate occasions, he told them, I'm gonna be delivered over to the Romans, I'm going to be killed, and three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. He wanted them to understand this was coming. And yet, as Jesus is hanging on that cross, they are nowhere to be found because they think that he's lost. Right? What other explanation is there when your rabbi is hanging on a cross to die? They still don't expect him to rise from the dead because people don't rise from the dead. But Jesus did. 
or at least the gospels would tell us that Jesus did. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then what does that say about what happened during his life? What does that say about the claims that he made to be God, to forgive sins, to be coming back one day? Lee Strobel uh, was a, a journalist in the 1970s. He worked for the Chicago Tribune and he was an atheist. But as a journalist, he was very, very concerned with facts, right? Uh, and as a journalist, he was very good at, at finding sources and getting testimony and piecing sources together into a coherent story to try to get at the truth. In 1979, his wife became a believer and uh, he, he began to notice her life changing in significant ways. And so he began to think, I wonder if there could be something to this whole Christianity thing. So he thought, well, I'm a journalist, so I'm gonna take my journalistic training and I'm going to apply it to some of the questions that arise when I read the Bible, right? Starting with things like, can we even trust this book? Like, how did we get from, you know, the days of Jesus till 2000 years ago, we have letters on a page. Can we trust that the transmission was reliable? What can we say about what Jesus actually thought about himself? Did he actually think about himself as God? And what kind of evidence do we have for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead? And so he began this two-year process of putting together a list of expert witnesses, experts in their field who had real thorough knowledge about the ancient world uh, and about some of these questions. And he began to interview them person after person after person, trying to gather facts from these credible sources and piece them together into a coherent and true narrative. At the end of this two-year journey to try to discover the truth about Jesus, here's what he concludes. He says, the resurrection is the supreme vindication of Jesus' divine identity and his inspired teachings. It's the proof of his triumph over sin and death. It's the foreshadowing of the resurrection of his followers. It's the basis of Christian hope. It's the miracle of all miracles. What Lee Strobel is recognizing is that, yeah, it's amazing to look at a story of Jesus speaking to wind and waves and having them calm down. But there is one miracle, he calls it the miracle of miracles that everything else hangs on. That, that if it's true, changes everything. And if it's false, then all of Christianity falls apart. He says, this is the resurrection. If Jesus actually rose from the dead, then we need to take seriously everything that he said before. And if he didn't actually rise from the dead, then we can just throw it all away. The apostle Paul uh, would say very much the same thing, kind of getting at the converse of what Lee Strobel said. He says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 to 19. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. You hear what Paul's saying? He says, if Jesus didn't actually, literally, bodily rise from the dead, then those who would claim he did are the most to be pitied. 
then everything that the church would say was accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus was really just nothing. Lee Strobel, the Apostle Paul, they recognized that everything hangs on whether or not Jesus actually rose from the dead. It's the first domino that if it falls, everything else falls with it. And the amazing thing about the resurrection is it's, it's a historical event. So we can actually look at the historical evidence that we have to evaluate whether or not this actually happened, right? Whether or not it's actually historically reliable. And so I want to highlight three of what I think are the, the most compelling pieces of evidence that we have for believing that Jesus actually rose from the dead. So the first that I would say, uh, and many have said these before me, Lee Strobel being one of them, uh, is that the body of Jesus was never able to be produced by his opponents, right? Think about this. The, the Romans, they wanted Jesus dead because they viewed him as a political threat. The Jews, they wanted Jesus dead because they recognized him as both a political and a religious threat. So people wanted, to be, wanted Jesus to be dead and, and they actually killed him. Now, three days after he's killed, we've got people going around saying that he's risen from the dead. Now, all they had to do was go over to the tomb and point to the dead body, right? Roll away this stone that was blocking the entrance and say, look, here he is. He's still dead, right? Like we would expect from a person. He's still dead. But, but they don't. They can't. They, they go to the tomb, but what they found, find is the this, this stone that was way too heavy for Jesus' followers to move had, had been rolled aside. And the guards that had been placed there to make sure that Jesus' disciples didn't steal the body, they talk about the, these angels that, that came and they're not really sure what happened, but the stone was gone. The stone was rolled away and the, the body was gone. And the body never shows up again. There is no dead body that anyone can ever track down. Why not? Well, the evidence would suggest it's because Jesus actually rose from the dead. So they couldn't produce a body. Uh, another strong piece of evidence for the fact that Jesus actually rose from the dead has to do with the eyewitness accounts of him after his resurrection. That is, people actually saw Jesus, the living Jesus, after he had been killed. And as the gospels tell the story of people finding that empty tomb, they place a very peculiar group of people as the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. The first people to find the empty tomb, the first people to have an encounter with the risen Lord. It's this group of women, of Jesus' followers, who, who were women who were coming to anoint his dead body. And the reason that that's so significant is because in the ancient world, women weren't viewed as having the same uh, the same voice as men. And their testimony didn't count for legal testimony. It wasn't considered trustworthy in that way. And so if people wanted to make up a story of Jesus being raised from the dead, they would not place women as the first eyewitnesses. But unanimously, uniformly across these four biographies of Jesus, we see a group of women as the first witnesses to the resurrection not because they're trying to make up a story, but because they're just recounting the facts of what happened. We read that Jesus also appeared then to his 12 disciples, the apostles, uh, and that even at one time, he appeared to a group of 500 people at one time. There's a lot of eyewitnesses that were testifying to the fact 
that Jesus had actually raised from the dead. They couldn't produce the body. People saw him after he rose from the dead. And a third reason, a third piece of evidence that we have for believing in the historical reliability of the resurrection is that nearly all of the 12 disciples of Jesus were martyred for their belief in Jesus, not in the abstract, but particularly for their claims that he rose from the dead. 10 of the 12 disciples of Jesus were killed for their belief in the resurrection. The, the only exceptions were Judas, who betrayed Jesus, and John, who while, on he was, while, while Jesus was on the cross, Jesus asked John to take care of his mother. The other 10 disciples were all willing to die before they were willing to give up on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, if you were making up a story, even a story that you really wanted to believe and you wanted other people to believe, would you be willing to die for that story if you knew that it wasn't true? Probably not, probably not. And yet we see 10 of the 12 disciples of Jesus all willing to go to their graves in defense of the resurrection of their Lord. These things make for incredibly compelling historical evidence for the fact that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And of all of the events that are recorded in scripture, the resurrection is the one that we have the most data about, the, the best ability to evaluate whether or not it actually happened. And it's also the one that if it did happen, changes everything. That if Jesus claimed to be God and he was killed and he rose from the dead, we have to take very seriously his claims to be God. So many people would love to just hold on to the teachings of Jesus, right? He was a good man. He lived a good life. He was a moral teacher. We can follow his ethics, but deny the fact that he was actually God. And this isn't just a modern problem. Uh, this was also uh, something that's been, that people have been thinking for, for decades and even centuries. C.S. Lewis was a Christian author and writer who was writing at the time of uh, World War II. The world is, is falling apart around him. Uh, and he's writing about reasons to believe in Jesus. And there were people in his day, just like ours, who would view Jesus as a good moral teacher, but not as God. And to those people, C.S. Lewis says this in his book, Mere Christianity. It says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. C.S. Lewis helps us understand the incoherence of holding to the teachings of Jesus while denying his claims at divinity. Because if Jesus wasn't actually God, and he claimed to be God, then either he's just delusional, right? He's just crazy, just like other people who might think of themselves as God, or he's just a liar, right? He, he's just deceitful. He's just trying to trick people. But in either case, we can't conclude that he was just a good man, that he was a great teacher. Either he was a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was Lord. 
the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe. And if we accept that, we see that everything else falls from that. That if we accept the truth of the resurrection, all of the other pieces fall into place. That Jesus actually was God there at the foundations of the universe. That he actually died on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven. That we actually have a spiritual enemy who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, to plant seeds of doubt in our minds. That Jesus, if he actually rose from the dead, serves as a foreshadowing of the resurrection, the new life that awaits us. That the gates of eternity have been opened to us. If Jesus actually rose from the dead, then all of the rest of that just follows. It just one after the next, after the next, after the next, and the whole biblical story begins to make sense. So this question that we're looking at today, is Jesus really God? Did he really rise from the dead? I think it's, it's the question. It's, it's the question that we have to wrestle with because it's the question that everything else follows from. It changes our whole life, changes the whole way that we look at the world. It changes the way that we relate to God, the way we relate to ourselves and the way that we relate to one another. And this morning, we have an opportunity to take communion together. Communion is this act that Jesus, just on the night before he was crucified, he, he begins this new practice. He, he transforms an old practice really with his disciples. It's at the Passover meal, one of the Jewish festivals, and he takes bread from this meal. He, his disciples still don't get it, right? Is Jesus God? They're not quite sure. They don't understand. He wants them to understand what's about to happen. He wants us to understand what has happened. So he takes that bread and he breaks it and he says, this bread is my body broken for you. He's looking forward to that next day where he's gonna hang on the cross, where nails are gonna be driven through his hands, where a spear is gonna be thrust through his side, saying, this is my body it's not just my life taken from me, it's my, my life laid down for you, my body broken for you. And then he, he takes the cup of, of wine at this meal and he gives it new meaning. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which will be shed for you. He looks forward to that next day when the blood would run down his forehead as the thorns pressed in and where it would drip down his hands where the nails went through dripped down his back where the lashes tore the flesh off his skin. And he said, all of this is for you so, so that your sins could be forgiven, so that you could know me, so that you could experience life, so that you could experience victory over death and evil. All of this is for you. And so we get to come forward this morning and take this physical, tangible act together as a reminder of that which Jesus has accomplished for us. As we do this this morning, if you're in one of these center rows, you'll be dismissed by row by the ushers and you can come forward. You can take the cracker and you can dip it in the cup. Uh, or if you'd rather, you can take one of the prepackaged uh, elements that have a gluten-free wafer and the juice in there together. If you're in one of the side sections, after I pray, you can just come forward uh, whenever you're ready to receive the elements. So let me pray for us as we get ready to take communion together. Lord, uh, as we come before you this morning, we, we do just recognize that we have 
we have to wrestle with the question of whether or not you are who you say you are, Lord Jesus. And I pray that this morning as we, as we come forward that there, there might be not just an act that we go through, not just something rote or ritual, but that, that you would come in and that you would reveal yourself to us through this. We can be reminded of that which you've done for us and so that we can experience the grace that you offer to us by virtue of your crucifixion and your resurrection. Would you be here, Lord, with us? Would you help us to encounter you? Would you remind us of that which is true in you? We ask this in Jesus' name.